Fantastic. So we're continuing our teaching series entitled Come Holy Spirit. Just put your hand in the air if you were with us last Sunday. A number of you, if you missed it, the talk's on our website, kxc.org.uk. So we're, we're going through this series. And there's two reasons why I believe this series is really timely for us. It's really significant for us. Um, the first one is, I think this cultural moment, the cultural moment we find ourselves in demands a deep responsiveness to the Spirit. Um, this is a time for the church to rise up, to live by faith and not by sight. I know that's the call of the church in every generation, but we live at a moment of cultural uncertainty. None of us can figure out how did we get here in, in this kind of like mess that we find ourselves in. When it comes to looking forward, none of us have a clue what's going to happen in a week's time, in, in months' time, years' time, politically, economically, socially, so much uncertainty. And yet we believe the Spirit knows what's around the corner, right? Oh, I believe that. That the Spirit knows. And therefore we need to press in to ask the Spirit to speak to us that we would be guided by the Spirit at this time. Like this is a moment to live by faith and not by sight. And if you read Hebrews 11, that's what the ancients were commended for. They were men and women of faith. So God said to Abraham, go to the land I will show you. In other words, I'm not going to show you now. It's like a game of hide and seek. You go, trust that I will provide for your needs. Go to the land I will show you on the way. That's faith. God essentially says the same to Moses on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. He says, I'm going to give you a cloud by day and a fire by night. These are manifestations of my presence. Stay close to my presence and my presence will lead you to this place of abundance. In other words, I'm not going to give you a map. Because there's a spirituality that emerges when you have a map. And the spirituality that emerges is you keep your head down and you just follow the map. You follow the plan, right? And God essentially says to Moses, I'm going to go one better than giving you a map. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to be your guide. Now, the spirituality that emerges when you have a guide is you keep your head up and you follow the guide, right? Jesus said, as a motto for ministry, I only do what I see my father doing. That's a head up spirituality. Paul spoke about keeping in step with the spirit. That's a head up spirituality. Jesus said, my sheep, they know the sound of my voice. The implication is that Jesus is a shepherd that wants to lead us to green pastures, still waters, where our souls are deeply refreshed, but we need to learn to hear the voice of our shepherd. I think a lot of us, you know, we might know what Jesus said. You know, we've got some quotes from the scriptures. But have we learned to tune into his voice? Do we know what he's saying now by the Spirit? Like this is a moment for the church to rediscover its apostolic edge, its prophetic edge, to live by faith and not by sight. Culture's changing so fast. The plans that we make, we have to rip them up pretty quickly, right? But we have a spirit who's leading us towards life. Um, this is why this series is hugely exciting for me right now. Second reason then is that this is a season of new life and therefore a season of potential mess. Um, John Wimber, a hero of mine, a thinker and theologian that founded the uh, Vineyard Movement in the States, he famously said that it's neat and tidy in the graveyard, but it's messy in the nursery, right, where there's new life. Now, I don't know if you've spent any time in a nursery, um, but let me just paint the picture for you. There's nappies, and not clean ones, like fully loaded nappies, and there's food on the floor, and there's crayons, and there's mess, and there's toys. It's, it's like chaos, um, but the chaos points to this unbelievable new life. 
And I believe what we're seeing at KXC right now is this new life. People are coming to faith and new ministries and social enterprises are being birthed. It's so exciting. We love the new life, but we're less keen on some of the mess that comes with the new life. Even in our Sunday gatherings, like the Spirit's interrupting our gatherings, our plans. We've made really good plans and the Spirit's disrupting them. That's frustrating, right? Um, No, it's incredibly exciting. Like last Sunday at 6.30 for those that were around, um, the service went on for an extra 45 minutes as people were just worshipping and soaking in the presence of God. It was beautiful, but it was pretty messy. Now, when we've had these kind of seasons before, um, people have got to the point where they've seen some of the mess and, and they've essentially said, look, you know, I like the new life, but some of these services, they're a little bit disordered. And they begin to quote 1 Corinthians 14, you know, where Paul says, God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order. And the services feel a bit disordered. And can I just say, I don't feel as comfortable now. People are expressing emotions and sometimes there's tears and sometimes snot begins to fly around. It just feels a bit strange. So can I respond? Because I know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, but let me just explain it to you. The point of Paul's teaching there is that it's the very nature and character and heart of God to enter disorder, to bring about kingdom order, healing and restoration. Isn't that unbelievably good news? That God enters disorder, that God embraces disorder. That means he can embrace me because I'm disordered. And some of you are probably like me. You've got areas of disorder. It means that God can embrace you. This is the message of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, that he enters the mess, the pain, the disorder in order to bring healing and restoration. It's unbelievably good news. So this is what's happening in our our gatherings. There's a bit of disorder, but it's, it's symbolic of new life. Here's the second reason, or the second explanation, is I want us to retrain our thinking around what order looks like. Like, I think we have certain ideas of what an ordered service looks like. It's probably a nice little block of worship at the beginning that's emotionally contained. Um, And then there's like a, a, a talk, you know, expositing a passage and that's all lovely and then a response song and then and then a prayer time but it's all neat and tidy and finishes on time and but can I just paint this picture for you imagine a worship you know gathering or a ministry time where in one corner of the room you've got two people locked in an embrace um, because they're being reconciled having been estranged for years and suddenly forgiveness and reconciliation is taking place and they're weeping as they embrace and in another corner of the room someone's getting free from an addiction or or some form of oppression because that's what the spirit does right where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom so they're experiencing freedom imagine somewhere else in the room someone's just come to faith because it's by the spirit that we say Jesus is Lord. So someone's come to faith and their friends are getting really excited. So there's an outbreak of joy in that corner. In another corner, someone is prophesying over someone, calling out destiny, and there's a sense of release. And in another corner, and I know what you're thinking, how many corners does this room have? It's it's not a rectangle, just letting you know right now, this room is not a rectangle that I'm describing. But in, in another corner, like someone's encountering the love of the Father, because that's what the Spirit does, pours the love of the Father into our hearts. It's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, like daddy and someone's encountering the love of the father and years of pain years of feeling abandoned of carrying this orphan spirit and suddenly in this encounter with the father they realize that they belong that they're in a family where they can experience love and and years of pain and abandonment is being washed away in this beautiful embrace and another part of the room someone's praying for physical healing and someone gets healed and imagine that scenario right in, in an octagonal shape um, room. Imagine that kind of like gathering, like humanly speaking, that would look completely disordered, right? 
But what if that's closer to the order of heaven as heaven breaks in? Like if you read the gospel stories, like Jesus encountering the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, like the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Men and women weren't meant to speak in the middle of the day. And Jesus like embraces the disorder to bring about the rule of heaven. Like think of the encounter where the, the lady, the prostitute lets down her hair and begins to pour a year's worth of wages in terms of perfume over the feet of Jesus and washes Jesus' feet with her tears, with her hair and with this perfume in front of a load of men, in front of Pharisees. That wasn't order. That was considered complete disorder. But Jesus embraces the disorder to bring healing and restoration. The rule of heaven begins to break in, Right? slightly messy, but new life is breaking in. That's what we're longing for. Not just neat, tidy Sunday gatherings, but a sense of the disruption of the spirit as new life breaks out. Do you want it? There we go. Um, This is what we're praying for and longing for. So this is our teaching series. Last week, we looked at the person of the spirit. Today, we're looking at the work of the spirit. Um, And I'm going to explore three things Um, That the Spirit reveals who we are in the eyes of God. This is all about identity. Secondly, um, the Spirit brings kingdom life to us and kingdom life through us. Thirdly, that the Spirit empowers God's people, that's you and I, to participate in God's purposes. Um, We're going to go in reverse order just to build a little bit of suspense. So we're going to start with number three. Um, So number three, um, that the Spirit empowers us to participate in God's purposes. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3. This is the story of Jesus' baptism. Um, I'll read it to you, but if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the Pew Bibles, Luke chapter 3. So when all the people were being baptized, that's by John the Baptist, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So this is a Trinitarian moment. Heaven is is torn open. The Father's speaking. The Son is being baptized. And the Spirit is present in the form of a dove. Now the question I want to ask is why does Luke emphasize that the Spirit was there in bodily form like a dove? Like, Why would it be a dove? Why not a raven? Why not a robin? I love robins. Like they're on all our Christmas cards. Why is the spirit there in the form of a dove? And the answer is it's loaded Jewish symbolism. So let's unpack it. And we're going to unpack it by going back to the the Genesis creation story. So this is how the Bible opens up. In the beginning. It's a great start to a story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I want that mental image in your mind. The Spirit of God at creation hovering over the waters. Now, it gets really interesting because the Jewish people, you may know this, spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. Um, Now, during that exile, they went through a language change. So the nation of Israel went into Babylon speaking Hebrew, um, and they came out of Babylon speaking the language of the Babylonians, Aramaic, right? So when they got back to Jerusalem, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they they translated the Hebrew scriptures because they wanted the next generation to know the story that defines them as a, a community. And that translation of the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew into Aramaic was called the Targum. And it essentially 
essentially condensed the Hebrew scriptures into these kind of sayings. And every so often, these sayings would slightly expand um, the Hebrew um, translations. So the, the translation that would have been most familiar to Jesus and his contemporaries was the Targum. Now, I want you to, to look here now. This is the translation from the Targum of the, the creation account. It adds three key words. That the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Are you ready for the three words? I don't sense that you're ready. Are you ready for the three words? There we go. We're ready for the three words. The three words are like a dove, right? So at the time of the first century, when the Jewish people would imagine their creation story, they would imagine the spirit hovering over the waters like a dove. So when Jesus is getting baptized, he's in the water, the Father's speaking, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters like a dove. For those that had eyes to see, essentially this was a moment of recreation. Everything was being restored to how it was in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering, humanity fully alive in relationship with God. The point of this passage is that Jesus is being anointed by the Spirit for a ministry of recreation, restoring creation. So let's look at this summary of the narrative of Scripture. We come back to this again and again at KXC because it's my one original thought. And I'm going to keep hitting this one original thought hard until I have a second thought. Um, But in the meantime, here's the one original thought. That this would be a summary of the creation story. That it starts with creation, but then created order unravels through sin. Let's call that decreation. And the rest of the narrative is really about God through Israel and ultimately through Jesus, bringing healing and restoration and redemption to all of created order. God is making all things new. Now, God fulfills this narrative in Jesus. The incarnation, incarnate, Greek meaning in flesh, that God takes on human flesh. He steps into the decreation. He lives for us. He dies for our sins, the sins that led to created order unraveling. And then he rises to new life, the firstborn of the new creation. So Jesus fulfills this story. And I want to drill one thought hard this evening, that he fulfills the story by the Spirit. Let's say it together. Three words. By the Spirit. Everything Jesus does, he does by the Spirit. So let's break it down, the incarnation. If you know the story that the angel appears to Mary and says, like, you're going to have a child and this child is going to be the Messiah. He's going to save people from their sins. And Mary says, like, how can this be? I'm I'm a virgin. Like, how how am I going to have a child? And the, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So how was Christ conceived? The answer is... By the Spirit. It's going to be the same answer every time, just to give you a helping hand. Every time it will be by the Spirit. Let's press on. Um, How does Jesus minister? Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee after being in the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And news spread about him through the whole countryside. And then he enters a synagogue. He unravels the scroll of Isaiah 61. He says this, the Spirit of the Lord... Same Spirit that was hovering over the waters in the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord... Um, is upon me because he's anointed me. Like the language of anointing, the language of being anointed as king. The word Messiah literally means anointed king. He's like, the spirit is anointing me to proclaim good news to the poor. uh, He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. In, In other words, everything that Jesus does, he does as he's empowered by the spirit. So how does Jesus minister? 
You're getting the hang of it. This is beautiful. Okay, let's look at the cross. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 9. The writer says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In other words, Jesus is led by the Spirit to the cross. So how does Christ offer himself to God the Father at the cross? The answer is... Only one more. Let's keep pushing on. Um, Romans chapter 8 then. Let's look at the resurrection. Paul says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So how was Jesus raised from the dead? The answer is... Okay, we'll stop there. I can see people are losing, you know, the joy of just saying that. Um, The point is, everything Jesus does, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, he does as he's empowered by the Spirit. Now, once you've grabbed hold of that, it makes the reading of John 14, which we looked at last week, utterly beautiful. Utterly beautiful. So let's read it. This is part of the farewell discourses. As um, Jesus basically says to his followers, I'm going to depart to be with the Father. And he says this, if you love me, keep my commands and I'll ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Now, if you were here last week, you'll know this, that we looked at these two words, another advocate, Greek, alos parakletos, alos, the Greek word for another, different to the Greek word heteros, which is another of a different kind. Alos is another of the same kind. So Jesus is saying like another one, just like me. Parakletos is the word for coming alongside. As you read the gospel narrative, Jesus spent so much of his time coming alongside the broken, the hurting, the marginalized, the tax collectors, the adulterers, the the prostitutes, the outcasts. He would come alongside and bring healing and restoration and kingdom life. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to send an alos parakletos, like another one just like me, who will come alongside and lead you to life. That's amazing, right? That the Spirit of God, is here amongst us right now, bringing life to our beings. Now, we, we quoted this Catholic theologian, brilliant thinker, Raymond Brown, who said, since the paraclete, the counsellor, the advocate, um, the comforter, since the paraclete can come only when Jesus departs, the paraclete is the presence of Jesus when Jesus is absent. In other words, Jesus did ascend to be with the Father. And we're waiting for his return. And when Jesus returns, um, at that point, heaven and earth will become one. Everything will be restored to how it was meant to be in the beginning. In the meantime, we have the alos parakletos, like the another advocate alongside us, helping us pursue and participate in the ministry of Jesus. Now, just literally verses before Jesus promises the Spirit of God, um, he says this statement. Now, I want you just to get your head around how mind-blowing this would have been to hear Jesus say this. He says, very truly, which basically in the Greek it's like truly, truly. In other words, this is really important. Listen up. So truly, truly, um, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. In fact, they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, if you're part of the the crowd following Jesus and you've watched his ministry and he's raised people from the dead, he's delivered the demonically oppressed, he's brought healing to the sick, he's opened the eyes of the blind, he's walked on water, he's turned water into wine, he's fed thousands of people with like a small pack lunch. And he basically says, I'm going to hand on my ministry to you. You're going to do what I've been doing. In fact, you're going to do even greater things. Go for it. 
what would your question be? Your question would be like, what? Like, how? Like, we've seen what you've been doing. We are unschooled fishermen. Like, we can't do this without you. How are we going to carry on your ministry? How are we going to do these greater works? And the answer for Jesus is, alos parakletos. I'm going to send you another one just like me who's going to come alongside and empower you to continue my ministry. So for those that were at KXC during our teaching series on the book of Acts, we looked at Acts chapter 1, where Luke, who writes this, basically says, In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So volume 1, Luke's gospel, is the story of Jesus and the beginning of his ministry. And then Luke says... Um, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. In other words, volume one is about what Jesus began to do. This volume, the story of the early church, is what Jesus continued to do by the Spirit. Like a better name for the book of Acts would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the consistent actor throughout the narrative. And it's the spirit that draws alongside the apostles and they're empowered to do the stuff of Jesus to continue his kingdom ministry. Unbelievable, right? And, and how are we empowered to participate in the ministry of Jesus? And we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks' time. One part of the answer is the gifts of the spirit. Now, when people start talking about the gifts of the Spirit in, in church settings and, and the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, people begin to twitch and get a, a little bit nervous. Um, but the point Paul is trying to make when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit is that these are gifts given to the church to enable us to participate in Jesus' ministry, right? So if you read through the list of 1 Corinthians 12, these, these gifts of the Spirit, a message of wisdom, a message of knowledge, um, to another the gift of faith, to another the gifts of healing, to another another miraculous powers to another the gift of prophecy and the list goes on if you read that list and then you work through the gospel narratives and they and you look at how Jesus is described you'll notice that they match up Jesus is described as a prophet and a teacher and a healer and a man of wisdom and a miracle maker and suddenly you realize oh my goodness these gifts enable us to participate in the ministry of Jesus they're not for the kind of charismatic keynotes for the slightly emotionally unhinged amongst us you know that can just do sort of some of the weird stuff no these are essentially given to us so that we can fully engage in the kingdom ministry they're not like the icing on the cake they are part of the cake right if you want to be fully effective in kingdom ministry, the Spirit has given us gifts so that we can play our part. So that's um, the first area I want to look at in terms of the work of the Spirit, to empower God's people to participate in God's purposes. Number two then, reverse order, to bring kingdom life to us and kingdom life through us. Um, I want you to grab hold of this. The Spirit brings unbelievable life. If, if you were to summarize the work of the Spirit, with New Testament language, it would simply be this. The Spirit gives life. Spirit gives life. Um, John chapter 6 just says exactly that. The Spirit gives life. In fact, Jesus, by the way, is described in John's gospel as the one who has the Spirit without measure, without limit. In other words, he's just overflowing with the Spirit. And that Spirit is like bringing devastating kingdom life wherever Jesus goes. So John 6, the Spirit gives life. Romans 8, it says, the Spirit who gives life. Um, the mind governed by the Spirit is life. 
The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but the Spirit gives life. Galatians chapter 6, from the Spirit we will reap eternal life. Again and again, this will be the summary of the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. The Spirit gives life. Which is why, by the way, in the fourth century, when the best theologians of the time got together to write the creeds, to distill Trinitarian theology, to define orthodoxy, this was their summary, the little paragraph on the Spirit. They said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, in other words, fully divine, that was last week we looked at that, third person of the Trinity. So we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and here's the summary, he's the giver of life. And he's here right now. Do you know his heart for this evening? He wants to bring life. How much do you want it? How much do you want it? How much are you willing to open yourself to the Lord, the giver of life? If you allow him, I can guarantee you he will bring beautiful kingdom life to you. Um, So back to this diagram, because I just sense in my spirit, a number of you are thinking, I'd just love to see that diagram again. That summary of the narrative, that really was amazing. I'd love just to see that one more time. So here it is. Creation, decreation, recreation. In the back of your mind, the spirit brings life. The spirit brings life. Let's look at how the the spirit does that through the narrative. So the creation story, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. Um, It can be translated spirit. So the Lord breathed into Adam and Eve the spirit of life. That's how they became living beings. That's the beginning of the story. Adam and Eve receiving the spirit of God. So if that's creation, what happens during decreation as created order begins to unravel? And the answer is we turn away from God We start worshipping other gods made in our image. Um, And as we do that, we lose the breath of God within us. This is what Psalm 135 says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. Now, before you laugh and think, oh my goodness, in those days, they worship little statues of stone and bronze and gold, and that's nuts. We've got our own idols, right? The pursuit of money and sex and power and reputation, all these things that we are pursuing, trying to find identity, belonging, purpose, hope, and those things, they would probably be laughing at us, thinking, oh my goodness, they find identity there. Um, And we're laughing at them. So everyone's laughing at one another. Um, But notice that essentially the consistent message then. So this is the psalmist saying about those worshipping idols. They have mouths but cannot speak. These idols, that they've been carved, you know, they've carved in mouths, but these idols can't speak. They've carved in eyes, but the idols can't see. They've carved in little ears. How cute is that? Um, But the idols can't hear. This is the key phrase. Nor is there breath in their mouths. Nor is there breath in their mouths. And here's the warning. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The psalmist is basically saying, if you worship these idols, you will lose the breath of God within you. You'll begin to spiritually die. And that's true of all idolatry. When you turn your back on the source of life, the living God, you are embracing spiritual death. You are losing the breath of God within you. So what's the remedy? The remedy is to receive afresh this breath that comes from heaven. 
So this is a prophecy given to a guy called Ezekiel. Now Ezekiel in this vision sees Israel. Israel have turned their back on God. They've become breathless. They've become dead essentially. And he sees this vision of Israel as as basically a valley of dry bones. And God speaks to Israel in this vision. He says, prophesy to these bones, these breathless bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath. Ruach, spirit, I will make the spirit enter you and you will come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Like this is a prophecy of Pentecost, the outpouring of the spirit, that breath will come into the followers of Jesus. They'll become a vast army pushing forward God's kingdom purposes. And if you read John chapter 20, you then see the fulfillment of this prophetic vision, right? Jesus, he's just been raised from the dead. The disciples haven't encountered him yet. Jesus walks through the walls of the upper room in which they're gathered. Now that would freak you out, right? How did you get in? We've locked the doors. How did you get in? Um, And what are you doing here? And he says, look, peace be with you. In other words, I can see you're frantic and distressed, like chill out a little bit. I've got some stuff I want to say to you. And this is what he says. As the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek actually says he breathed into them, not just on them, into them. In other words, anyone reading this text, immediately their mind goes back to Genesis 2, as God breathed into Adam and Eve. Immediately their mind goes back to Ezekiel 37. God breathing life on this valley of dry bones. Like suddenly everything's being restored to how it was meant to be in the beginning. This is a vision of recreation, of the new creation breaking in upon us. And what does this life look like? If you read through the scriptures, you'd summarize it looks like healing and liberation, transformation, restoration, redemption. It's unbelievable, by the way. I could tell literally hundreds of stories of people in this congregation, people that, you know, friends and family members of my own life, and my own personal stories of how the Spirit brings unbelievable life, right? I've just got time for one, so I'm going to tell one. Um, A really close friend of mine, Jeannie Morgan, um, she's actually written up this story in her book, Let the Healing Begin. I used to work on staff with her at Soul Survivor. Um, Essentially, when she was much younger... Um, she went through something that all mums and dads go through, that moment where you lose one of the kids in the house, right? Like they've gone quiet for a while. You know, have they gone to the toilet? Like have they fallen asleep whilst playing? Where are the kids? And she began to look around the house and couldn't find, so started calling the name of her toddler, um, her daughter. And he's like, where is she? Where is she? And then that moment of panic kicked in of what, she, what if she's outside? Knowing that outside there was a swimming pool. So Jeannie like ran to the back door. She noticed that the door was open. She ran into the garden. She saw like her deepest, deepest nightmare, fear, like a reality as she saw her daughter who had drowned in the swimming pool. Um, Over the next months, years, Jeannie fell into a very, very deep depression, um, trying to process the guilt, the grief, the anguish. Um, she went to see therapists. She tried everything. She just couldn't actually experience joy because there's this deep pain that just shrouded her. Anyway, she rocked up to this church um, and someone spoke a little bit like this. And at the end of the talk, there was a ministry time. 
Um, and Jeannie thought, well, I've tried everything else. I don't really believe in God, but like, hey, if others are receiving like the Spirit and the Spirit brings life, I'll give it a shot. Went to the front, opened herself to the Spirit. And as the Spirit fell upon her, she began to shriek with, with pain. Like just began to scream as all of this pain that had been locked inside actually began to be verbalized in the presence of God. Anyway, she went home the next week. Sunday came round. She said to her husband, Ken, like, I'm not sure I believe in that God stuff, but I want to go back to that church. So she turned up again, went to the front at the end of the service for prayer and just began to scream. And week by week, she rocked up. She carried on screaming. And little by little, she began to experience healing and restoration. Now, I got to know her many years after that as we worked on staff together, and she was overseeing prayer ministry and the healing ministry at Soul Survivor. But I remember going on holiday with her um, to Australia, to Noosa. Anyone been to Noosa? A cracking holiday resort. Let's chat about it afterwards. Um, and it was basically Ken and Jeannie, my brother Tim, myself, and a handful of others. And I remember on that holiday, we, we just had the most amount of fun, like crazy levels of fun. And I remember thinking on that holiday, how can it be that Jeannie carries so much infectious joy wherever she goes? Like wherever she ministers, she just brings this joy and this sense of hope and a sense of purpose. It's, it's unbelievable. How can she carry that when she's been through what she's been through? And honestly, I was like probably 25 as I was getting to know her. I knew the answer. It's because the Spirit gives life. She'd spent her life, at least the latter years, hosting the Spirit of God, opening herself, not just once, but regularly, opening herself to the Spirit, and the Spirit brings life. Humanly, I don't think you can explain it, but through the Spirit, it makes complete sense. The Spirit brings life. We're to our final point then, the final area, the Spirit at work in our lives. The Spirit reveals who we are in the eyes of God. The Spirit reveals, firstly, the person of Jesus. It's by the Spirit that we can say Jesus is Lord. So a few weeks ago, we had a baptism service, and we celebrated stories of people that had come to faith. I don't know if you were here, but the stories were mind-blowing of people that had encountered the Spirit, and as the Spirit opened their eyes to see Jesus, they were just completely compelled and said, I want to follow this Jesus. I just, I, I want to be around him. I want to receive the life that he brings. The Spirit reveals Jesus. Secondly, the Spirit reveals the love of the Father. This is what it says in Romans 5, that the, that the Spirit um, pours the love of the Father into our hearts. Now, I want you to know, and I know you know this, but I just want to hit this point home, that the love of the Father is totally transformative. Totally, totally transformative. Here's a story that I love of a um, Pentecostal priest um, called um, Robert Cornwall. His brother, Judson Cornwall, was a very famous Pentecostal preacher. Um, but Robert ministered in Oregon. And one week, he basically decided that he's going to rock up to his local hospital and found the sort of warden and said, look, I'm a priest in the local area. I want to volunteer and have my time, anything I can do. And the warden said, oh, not really. And then suddenly he had this kind of like brainwave. It was like, oh, there is one thing you can do. Follow me. So he led um, Robert Cornwall down a corridor, left, right, and they eventually come to this room, and this room has all these locks on the side of the door. And the warden just begins to open up the locks, opens the door, and says, could you spend time um, with these 37? Now, on the door, it said room 37. It was essentially a padded cell with 37 people inside. The hospital didn't know how to deal with this many years ago, didn't know how to deal with these people. They were like high on their drugs, 
totally incapacitated, couldn't relate to one another. Um, And the warden said, could you just spend some time with these 37? So the warden says, like, if you want to step in. And then behind him, closes the door and begins to do up all these locks. And Robert Cornwall suddenly in this room, room 37, like, totally out of his depth, thinking, oh my goodness, like, what do I do? And starts to pray, Lord, I, I can't relate. Like, there's excrement literally all over the walls, and there's puddles of urine, and the place stinks, and the people can't respond to me. Like, what do I do? And he felt God say, just sing to them. So the first song that came to mind, and he started singing it. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. He's got a full hour. Spend, so he just keeps going. Yes, Jesus loves me. Anyway, at the end of the hour, the warden rocks up, begins to undo the locks, opens up the door, says, thanks so much for that, super helpful. And Robert Cornwall walks home thinking, what was that? Anyway, the next week, he, he turns up again, says to the warden, anything I can do? The warden says, yeah, follow me. Down the corridor, left, right, room 37, opens up the door. Could you spend an hour with these guys? Um, Robert Cornwall finds a space on the floor where there isn't any urine, any excrement, and just starts singing again. Yes, Jesus loves me. Third week, there's a breakthrough. He's on the floor singing, and this lady stands up and begins to walk towards him. Now, Robert Cornwall's getting a bit anxious, thinking there's no button to press, you know, in, in an emergency. Like, what do I do? What's she about to do? She walks over towards him. She sits down next to him, and she joins in the singing. And two of them just go for it. Yes, Jesus loves me. Week by week, other people begin to join in the singing. This is a true story. At the end of six months, 36 out of the 37 were out of room 37, many of them on self-help wards. At the end of the year... Everybody was out of room 37, out of the hospital, and many of them worshipping in his local church. That is unbelievable, do you not think? It's a very difficult way to grow the local church. Um, But that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. How do you explain that? And the answer is the transformative love of the Father. And the reality is you and I, we spend so much of our time chasing around this feeling of love. Like constantly checking our phones, social media. Do people love me? Do they like my recent post? Like, do, do people love me? We're doing this frantically. And all the time, the Father is saying, by my spirit, I want to pour my love into your heart. It will turn your life around Will you open yourself up to me. The Spirit reveals the person of Jesus. The Spirit reveals the love of the Father. Um, it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, this term, Aramaic term of deep affection. Like some of us, actually, it's so intimate, the, the, the kind of phraseology that we'd rather call God like almighty God or father in heaven, something more formal. The idea of calling him daddy feels a bit awkward. But Paul says it's by the spirit that we actually learn to relate to God with like unbelievable intimacy. We call him dad, daddy because we know that's where our, we get our truest sense of belonging. Like the point I'm trying to get across, and I'll close with this, all of this is on offer. Every time we gather as the church, in our homes, in our small groups, and say, come Holy Spirit, we're asking for all of that. It would be complete madness if we didn't open ourselves to receive, right? It would be complete madness when all of that is on offer.